Uh, well, with that said, uh, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 to 32. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 32. If you like to follow along on a mobile device, uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, okay, the New International Version. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 32. This is the reading of God's word. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts, which is all about the origin story of the church. And we're paying attention to everything that's happening as God is forming this early community of believers because it's going to give us an idea of what we should expect to experience as God continues to form and shape our community here in Los Angeles. Okay, so to review up to this point in the story, the apostles have now gotten their first taste of persecution outside the church. They've also gotten their first taste of turmoil inside the church, as we read in the story of Ananias and Sapphira last week. And we're continuing along in Acts chapter 5, and in the text we're looking at today, the apostles are now being persecuted for the second time by the powers that be. Okay, so they've already been put in jail once for preaching the gospel. Uh, we know that didn't stop them. The church keeps growing. And so the religious authorities are starting to get jealous because amazing things are happening. And they're on the outside looking in. And so what do they do? They arrest the apostles again. Well, the next morning, uh, they go to the jail and they're shocked to find that the apostles are gone. Because during the night, the Holy Spirit shows up, 
opens up the jail cell, and the next morning they're back in the temple courts preaching the gospel, teaching people about new life in Jesus. Okay, and, and before we go on, I just want to make a quick side note. If there's anything the story of Acts is going to show us, it's that living in God's purpose for your life is really hard. There are going to be people all the time who will, at every turn, who will do everything they can to discourage you, to hold you down. You're going to encounter trials and hurdles that are going to make you want to quit. But can I just say that if there's anything Acts shows us, it's that there is nothing that can thwart the plans of God for your life. The high priest and all the associates, the prison guards, the locked jail cell, nothing could stop God from doing what he wanted to do. And so if you're in a season right now of discouragement or hopelessness, where you feel very uncertain about the future, or you feel like, I know this is what God has called me to do. I know these are the ways God has gifted me, and I know he's, he's given me this mission and purpose in life. But you just feel like there's a setback after setback after setback, discouraging thing after discouraging thing. I want you to know God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in and through you, and there is nothing that can stop him. As it says in Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. And it's very clear that the apostles understand this, right? Because this is why we see this in verse 29. They're brought before the Sanhedrin again. These religious authorities are like, we told you, we gave you strict warnings not to preach the gospel, to stop doing this. And this is how they respond in verse 29. We must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. I long for that to be the slogan of my life. That I would be able to say that what drives me every single day of my life, what motivates every decision I make and fuels every pursuit and desire is not the opinions of other people, but the opinions of God. And I want to spend our time today unpacking that one line. We must obey God rather than human beings. You see, there is an addiction that I believe is the most dangerous addiction out there. Dare I say more dangerous than pornography? more dangerous than gambling, more dangerous than drugs. And the reason this addiction is so dangerous is that most people don't even recognize it when it's there. In fact, it's an addiction that often gets rewarded by our society, and it's an addiction to approval. Let me tell you, there is nothing that will do more harm to your life and to your relationships than an addiction to approval. When the driving motivation of your life is not to please God, but to please others. Where all of our thoughts, desires, and actions revolve around how we will be perceived by those around us. The Bible calls this the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. You know, in this text you get a juxtaposition of two groups of people. On one hand, you have the Sadducees. You have the religious authorities. These are the people with power, right? And on the other, you have the apostles. And I just find it very ironic 
that even though it's the apostles who are on the run, it's the apostles who are clearly the weak ones in the story, when you read this passage, you realize that, that it's in fact the Sadducees who are most gripped in fear. Okay, right off the bat, we read that they were filled with jealousy. Okay, so the apostles are getting all the love and all the attention. Their reputation is growing, and these religious leaders are extremely concerned that they're losing their power. And then a few verses later, what we read is that once the apostles are released from jail, the captain and the officers go out to find them. And it says, but they, they, they remembered not to use force because they feared that the people would stone them. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Everything these religious leaders are doing is driven by a fear of men. And then you have the apostles who should be the ones scared, who are the ones on the defensive, saying, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must fear God rather than man. Okay? Now, just as a show of hands, anybody in the room struggle with an addiction to approval? Just raise your hands. Good. All right? I see some of you are almost there. It's, it's okay. We all care what other people think, and you're just confirming this, this sermon, okay? Um, let me just tell you, I am exhibit A when it comes to fear of man, okay? My entire life, I have lived for the approval of others. My entire life, I have lived to make others happy and mold myself to, the, to be the person I believe other people want me to be. And this runs so deep in the fabric of who I am. First of all, I'm an oldest son of immigrant parents. And in my culture, there are certain expectations placed on older siblings that younger siblings will just never know. As an Asian American, I can tell you that I grew up in a time when I was completely shaped by a model minority myth that trained me to believe that the secret to success in American society was you never stir the pot, don't make the people up top angry, put your head down, and work hard. And then add to that, my natural disposition as a person is that I am extremely non-confrontational, I am extremely conflict avoidant, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, right? And so you put all of those things together and you get someone, for who, someone who for his entire life has been driven by others' perception of him. And for some reason, this guy chose to go into ministry. Okay. Right? Working for a church is like putting an open bar in front of an alcoholic, okay? If you have an addiction to approval... Something that I have realized over the past few years in ministry is that you cannot please everyone. And it kills people like me. Because my whole life, I have felt that I've done a pretty good job of pleasing most. And my guess is that there are others in this room like me. Where every decision we make goes through a filter of questions in our mind. How is this going to make me look? How are people going to perceive me? Will they like me? Will they hate me? Will they appreciate me? Will they think less of me? Will this make me look weak? Will this make me look weird? Will this hurt my chances of getting a promotion at work? And every time we do this, 
We give human beings more power than we give to God. We end up making decisions that we know we shouldn't be making because we're so worried about how so-and-so will perceive us. We lash out on people who make us look bad in front of others. We burn out because we can't say no and we can't create boundaries for ourselves. We sacrifice our values and our integrity for likes and follows. We stay silent in the face of injustice and abuse. We're constantly trying to defend and justify ourselves, all because we care more about the opinions of human beings than we do about the opinion of God. Now, where did this need for approval come from? Because it's deeply ingrained in all of us. Well, in Genesis 1, we read that God created human beings in his own image. And he saw all that he had made, and he called it very good. Before human beings did anything, God approved of them. He said, you are very good. The divine benediction. You are very good. And what this means is that we as human beings were created to hear these words spoken over us. You are very good. It is our original identity bestowed upon us by God. But what happens? Sin enters the world and compromises that identity. And now rather than look to the creator as our source of goodness, rather than look to the creator as our source of approval, we began to seek that approval from human beings through our accomplishments, through our wealth, through our influence, through our power, through our titles. In other words, we began to look to people rather than God to tell us what we're worth. And this is why it's so significant that when Jesus comes into the world, before he begins his ministry, before he performs one miracle, before he accomplishes anything, he gets baptized and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's the divine benediction all over again. It's the Father saying, you are very good. And this is not only signifying the beginning of a new creation, it's foreshadowing what Jesus came to do for you and me through his life, his death, and his resurrection. To make us new and wash us clean, to put his name on us, so that when God looks at me, he doesn't just see Jason. He sees me through the lens of his son. Through Jesus' love, Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness. He looks at me and evaluates me not on the basis of what I've done or haven't done. He looks at me and he sees Jesus and he says, you are very good. This is the gospel. You and I work so hard, right, to get the world to approve of us. You and I work so hard to prove ourselves to our parents to prove ourselves to our bosses and our friends because we all desperately want to hear those words. You are very good. Not realizing that in Christ, God already declares us very good. You don't need to impress anyone. You don't need to accomplish anything. God looks upon you and says, this is my child whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Sadly, right now we are living in a time that is very hard for approval addicts. The fear of man used to be something that was limited to the small group of people in your life, your family, maybe your immediate circle of friends. 
now our lives are essentially broadcast to the entire world so that complete strangers can tell us what we're worth. We live in a time when the opinions of people who have nothing to do with our lives have the power to shape our decisions. They have the power to keep us up at night. They have the power to crush us and destroy our self-worth. Pew Research, they did a study in December of 2022, so very recent study, that said nearly half of teens between the ages of 13 and 17 had been bullied or harassed online. And you know what the most common reason was? Their physical appearance. 13 to 17. It is so hard to be a young person today. You're 13 years old, and you have people who you don't even know on the internet judging and evaluating you on the way you look. This is the world that our kids are growing up in. It's not surprising that suicide rates among teens are skyrocketing across the globe. And nowhere is this phenomenon more pronounced than in South Korea. And as a Korean American, on one hand, I can tell you, I am very proud of my country. I am very proud of what we've been able to accomplish over the past few years. It is unfathomable to me that I have friends who are not Korean who can sing every BTS song, like, phonetically. And that takes skill, okay? It's a gift. And it makes me really excited and proud that my kids don't have to be ashamed of K-pop. But at the same time, we cannot deny the shadow side of the K-pop industry that lures so many children at an early age into its grasp with the promise of fame and success and puts them through what can only be described as a militant style of training. Where from a young age, when they should be playing outside and having fun with their friends, they are singing and dancing and performing every day for executives who tell them, you're not good enough. You need to be better. You need to be skinnier. You have to be prettier. And if they happen to be one of the lucky few who do make it, these children are then thrust into a life where they are now subject to both extreme adoration and extreme scrutiny of millions of K-pop fans who have the power to take them to the stratosphere and then in a moment have the power to drag them down to the depths. And we all know the nature of this industry is that your biggest fans can turn into your harshest critics in an instant. If it's not you, it's because the netizens have determined there is someone else better than you, younger than you, more relevant than you, and they will make sure you know it. And there are stories after stories of the psychological toll this has had on artists who for their entire lives have been trying to prove to the world they are good enough. NPR did a, a report on this in 2019 after the tragic suicides of two K prominent K-pop artists. I don't know if you remember, Solli and Kuara. And, and they died within months of each other. And because of their deaths, it prompted the Korean government, it prompted the media to start to look under the hood of a lot of these suicides. And you know what they found? They found so many similar stories. And they found a myriad of, out of stories of artists who were driven to a breaking point for various reasons. And it was the same thing that popped up over and over again. 
hateful comments, because of lies that were spread on the internet that tarnished their reputation, because of photos or messages that were leaked that painted them in a certain light, because of the pressures of trying to keep their fans happy. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to the fact that the, the way our world works is that we give so much power to human beings to tell us what you're worth. And so you can understand why when you lose that human approval, you feel like you have nothing left to live for. The fear of man is such a destructive force. Let me ask you a question. Who are you giving power to in your life that is keeping you from living out your God-given purpose? Whose opinion or approval drives you when you make decisions? Who are you afraid of disappointing? How much time and energy are you spending trying to be well-liked, trying to please everyone, trying to be the perfect son, daughter, leader, husband, wife, parent? When was the last time you asked God what he thinks? You know what's really interesting? Every week I preach a sermon and I go home and the first person I talk to is my wife. And I say to my wife every time, how was it? <laughs> and I brace myself for whatever, you know. Thankfully, you know, she's, she's pretty nice about it. How was it? And all day long, what's going through my mind is, why did you say it like that? Why did you do it like that? I don't think they, you know, like saw a lot of RBFs out there, okay? They didn't look very happy, okay? Like, I don't know, you could have done this better. You could have put this point better. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? They weren't pleased. The church wasn't pleased. The church doesn't think you're good. I can't remember the last time I went home, got on my knees and said, God, were you pleased? God, did I honor you? Did I share what was on your heart? Did I represent you the way you wanted to be represented? We make people so big in our lives, and we make God so small. And the reason this is a losing battle is that people are so fickle. Some days they will be for you, and some days they will be against you. Some days they will celebrate you, and some days they will condemn you. You put your hope in people, and they will let you down. They will disappoint you. And if we allow people to have this kind of power on, in our lives, then our lives will ever only be as good as other people tell us it is. This is why it makes so much sense that Jesus wasn't very concerned about people's opinion of him, both good and bad. You know, like Jesus would perform these incredible miracles, right? He would go look at a crowd of the 5,000. He would feed them with a couple loaves and some fish, you know? And they would be like, this guy is the man. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one that has been prophesied for centuries. This is the king. This is the Messiah. And you know what Jesus would do? He never accepted the crown. It says he went to a solitary place to be alone with the Father. Because he knew that the people saying, crown him now, would be the same people saying, crucify him later. 
At the end of the day, Jesus' life was marked by a heart that said, you could crown me or you could crucify me. I live to please only one person, my Father in heaven. I must obey God rather than human beings. You're going to hear me talk about Tim Keller a lot over the next few weeks um, because, man, like outside of maybe Kobe Bryant, I can't think of another like public figure for me as a, as a Christian and as a pastor whose death impacted me so much. And, um, you know, he was and he, he's always going to be one of my spiritual heroes. And it was really interesting kind of seeing what happened near the end of his life. So in 2020, he was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer. And, you know, he continued, you know, from his hospital bed, he was still, you know, tweeting out things for the church. And we needed him in those times. We needed his voice in those times. And it was really interesting to see what happened at the end of his life. The Twitter mob just came for him. You know, and it made me realize, man, this, like, this world is growing more and more hostile to Christianity. And I saw this man who dedicated his entire life and ministry to preaching the gospel and loving the city of New York just be dragged through the mud over and over again. And, and this was while he was dying of cancer. I saw people who used to call him friend on a dime turn on him, write blog posts about why he was not, a, you know, why he should not be ministering anymore. He was too liberal for some, too conservative for others. And you just realize that no matter how hard you try, you could be Tim Keller, the guy quoted by every pastor in the U.S., and still it would be impossible to please everyone. But what was so encouraging for me and what, was so, what seemed so evident in Keller in his final moments was at the end of his life, what mattered to him most was not the opinions of man, but that of his Father in heaven. And I believe he is with the Father right now, and he has heard the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are very good. And it's not because you're Tim Keller, okay? It's not because you wrote a lot of books, not because you preached a lot of sermons, because of what I have done on account of Christ you are very good because of the one you so faithfully pointed people toward. You are very good because of Jesus. Now, two quick things. Some of you can listen to this and say, well, I don't need this sermon because I don't really care what people think. You know? It's like, this is, I'm good. You know? Like, hey, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Often it's the people who say, love me or hate me, I'm going to be me. It's those people who care the most about what people think. Those are the people who get the most angry when they hear someone say something about them. They're like, you know what? I don't care. But they're dead to me. And I'm going <laughs> to, but you know, I, I'm going to unfollow them. I'm going to block them on social media. I don't care what they think, though. Don't hang out with them. Nobody hang out with them anymore. Okay. And sometimes we don't even know who we're trying so hard to impress. I talk to people who only realize very later on in life, oh my goodness, I am a doctor 
today, and I have this picket fence life because of one thing my parents said to me when I was young. And I am still trying to prove that I'm very good to them to this day. I'm still trying to prove it. And this brings me to the second thing I want to say. All of us in this room need to understand the power that we hold in people's lives. Parents, you hold so much power in your children's lives. Spouses, you hold so much power in your husband or wife's lives. We hold so much power in our friends' lives. And the question we should be asking is, are you embodying the approval of Christ when you interact with those whom God has entrusted to your care? Or are you perpetuating the lie that they're already hearing from everyone out there in the world that you need to be something or accomplish something or do something great in order to be loved and accepted? Because that is the way our world operates. It perpetuates this fear of man. It rewards people who look a certain way, act a certain way, have certain careers. And so in your relationships, are you perpetuating this or are you showing them the beauty of the kingdom of God where you don't have to do anything because in Christ, God already declares you very good? You know, the first sermon I ever heard by Pastor Keller was a sermon on the story of Rachel and Leah. And it was a sermon titled, The Girl Nobody Wanted. And I will remember this sermon forever. For those of you unfamiliar with this biblical story, it's the story of, of Jacob who works seven years because he's like, he, he sees this really hot girl named Rachel. He works seven years for his future father-in-law in order to marry this younger, beautiful sister. And on the wedding night, he consummates his marriage and discovers that the woman he slept with isn't Rachel, but is her older sister Leah, okay? I don't know at what point he realized that, but that's what happened, okay? And at some point, I'll do an entire sermon on it, so I'll, I'll, hopefully we can unpack that later. But he's like, oh my goodness, you're not Rachel, you're Leah. And so he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And the way that I learned this story in Sunday school and the, what I thought this story was about was about Jacob's persistence and his relentless love for Rachel because he was willing to work seven years and then another seven years just so he could have the woman of his dreams. And I was like, oh man, this is such a beautiful story. And this sermon by Pastor Keller was the first time I ever heard the story from Leah's perspective. Oh, to be Leah, the girl nobody wanted. The girl who just wanted to be called very good. And this story is heartbreaking because Leah is willing to do anything she can to get the approval of her husband. In that time, a woman's value and worth was based on her ability to produce sons. And so we see this, that she is so driven by what the world thinks of her that she, has, she bears him four children. And after the first three, after each time she bears him a son, she says, now my husband will love me. And she says it three times. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. But the beauty of the story is what she says after the fourth child. 
she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And then we read, she stopped conceiving children. When she stopped living for the approval of others and recognized the God who loved her before she produced even one child, she was finally able to get her life back. And the beauty of this story, which we only find out when we read the New Testament, is that we read that Jesus comes not from Rachel's seed, from Leah's seed. It was always Leah's destiny to carry the line of the Messiah. She just couldn't see it because she allowed human beings to be big and God to be small. She couldn't see it because she allowed human beings and not God to tell her what her value and what her worth is. Today, if there are people in this room who you think, if I get married, now the world will love me. If I have children, now the world will love me. If I make six figures, seven figures, now the world will love me. I want you to see a God who loved you before you accomplished anything. Who loved you in your mother's womb. The same thing Leah saw was the same thing Peter saw. Remember Peter, who was so scared of what a servant girl thought that he denied his best friend, denied knowing his best friend three times. And in Peter's eyes, a servant girl's approval was bigger than the approval of God. But when it finally clicked for him that this God hung on a tree and died for him, all of a sudden, the same guy who once said, I never knew the man in Acts 5 is saying, we must obey God, not human beings. If there's hope for Peter, there's hope for us. If you, like me, find yourself often gripped by the fear of men, I want you to know today that new life is possible in the gospel. That if we would simply look at Jesus the one who gazes at us with love and calls us very good. There is freedom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word today. God, we are so inspired by the courage and the confidence of the apostles who live their life with the mantra, we must obey God rather than human beings. And Lord, we confess that so much of our lives are driven by approval. So much of our lives are driven by a fear of man, a fear of what people will think, a fear of how we are perceived by others. And I pray that even as we sit here, you would open our eyes to see a God who gazes at us with love, who says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, not on account of what we've done or what we could do, but on account of what you've done for us. 
on your perfect life and your sacrificial death. We thank you for this word. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.